Three, two, one. He has to throw it. Oh, that's going to be the game. Everett Saunders. Everett Saunders seals it with zero seconds on the clock. Walker finds Dexter. Lawrence, a lot of space. Lawrence going deep. Dexter over the top, backhand in the oh end zone. Boy. This oh could boy. win the game. Lawrence goes oh up right in and stabs it down. Three seconds left on the clock. Are you kidding me? Welcome back. It's Swing Pass. I'm Adam Ruffner. That's Daniel Cohen. We had another mega weekend that is now in the books from week eight in the AUDL. 13 games are now over and a slew of really interesting results from all four divisions across the league. Colorado dropping both of their road trip games first on Friday night in Salt Lake and then again the next night in Oakland in two thrilling West Division finishes elsewhere in New York. They take care of business against Boston getting the 25-16 home victory. They're 26th in a row in New York, extending all the way back to 2018, the second longest home winning streak of all time, just a few behind the very historic Madison Radicals home winning record that stretched from, I believe, 2013 or 2014 through 2016 at some point. So New York just continuing to make this season a historic one. Elsewhere in the league, D.C. gets a huge 23-14 win at home over Montreal. Montreal made it a two-goal game in the second half, but D.C. closed out on an 8-1 fourth-quarter run. Breeze now improved to 4-2. They take over second place after Boston's loss to New York. Boston now 4-3, D.C. 4-2. Elsewhere in the East, Philly getting a big win, 22-13 against Montreal on their second game of their road doubleheader. Philly now winners of four in a row. They're 4-4. Four and four. They sit just a half game back of Boston, but it's more like a full game because Boston currently owns a head-to-head win against the Phoenix. Montreal now winless in their first seven games of the season. Their worst start in franchise history. They fall to 0-7 at the bottom of the East Division. Elsewhere in the league, Toronto getting a last-second win at home over the Pittsburgh Thunderbirds. Big, big win for them, 18-17. to They now improved to 3-4, and four, just at a half game back of Philly. So one game separates the third-place Boston team, Philly, and Toronto now in the East Division. That final playoff spot really starting to heat up as we head into the final stretch, the 2023 regular season. Minnesota gets a huge, huge road win, 24-19, very convincing at Bree Stevens Field. They improved to 6-1, still holding on to first place in the Central Division. Madison, meanwhile, falling to 1-5 on the season, only ahead of the Detroit Mechanics in the Central Division. Just a very, very, very discouraging run here for the Radicals team that just can't seem to catch any real breaks they made some highlight plays at home, but Windchill's defense, those pulls, the intensity that they bring, just wearing out the Radicals' offense throughout the course of that one. Again, Minnesota coming away with one of their most convincing wins ever, particularly in Bree Stevens Field. They've now gotten wins at Bree Stevens Field in each of the past four seasons after failing to get a win in their first six seasons of play against Madison at Bree Stevens Field. So Windchill. Really turning around the narrative there. Elsewhere in the Central Division, Chicago getting back on track with a 21-15 win over Portland. They improved to 3-3, three and three, moving ahead of Pittsburgh now for the third and final playoff spot in the Central Division. 
Union three and three, Pittsburgh three and four following their loss to Toronto. What else do we have? Austin improving to six and three in a windy, windy, windy game in Houston. 18 to 15, the sole prevail over the Havoc. They now sit in a virtual tie for second place in the South Division with the Carolina Flyers at six and three. Atlanta still holding on to first place in the South Division with their huge 29 to 14 win over Dallas on Saturday night. Atlanta improves to six and two, picking up a win after falling in last week's game of the week in New York against the undefeated Empire. Seattle rounding out the results of this huge, huge weekend. They get a win on Saturday night in San Diego, 20 to 19, improving to two and six. Meanwhile, the Growlers dropping their third straight. They now sit at two and five, really clinging to the last rungs of their playoff hopes as both as Oakland, Colorado, and Los Angeles really start to separate themselves alongside Salt Lake at the top of that West Division. LA getting their third straight victory, or excuse me, fourth straight victory. Correct. They've been winning were, a lot. They started yeah. one and three. They are now five and three with another yeah. convincing nine goal win at home over Seattle. LA again moving up in the West Division after faltering a little bit with so many of their new roster in implementations this year. You love to see the Aviators living up to some of this hype that they had built up over the offseason. They now sit in a tie in the West Division with Oakland, Colorado. There's just a lot coming together right now in the league. It felt like two weeks ago, the playoff picture was a lot more unclear. And now all of a sudden, it really starts to seem like we have a set of teams now really pushing for the road to championship weekend, which will end up in the Twin Cities at the end of August. Minnesota obviously hoping to host that one. They seem to be in pole position in the Central Division. We'll get to that later. We're going to start off first in talking about game analysis this week with the Colorado road trip. And I think the number one game of the weekend, all due respect to the second game of Colorado's road trip, that Oakland game was stunning. We'll talk about that a lot. But Friday night's round two matchup between Salt Lake and Colorado certainly lived up to the hype once again. Obviously, Salt Lake winning a week ago in Colorado, their first ever win against the Summit, the reigning division champs. They come home looking to protect Zion Bank Stadium, and boy, did the shred ever do that. Their defense getting breaks when they needed it to. That offense looking like the number one offense in the league. They now lead the league in efficiency. There's just not a weak link in that uh, core of starting seven. The the Sean Canole, the Jacob Miller, the Jordan Kerr, the Will Selfridge, Jace Dunabile, uh help me out here elijah jaime and luke jorgensen those seven yeah. have just been incredible it allowed them to spell grant lindsley onto defense he provided some spark and just i think field general qualities to that young shred defense that again continues to come up plays when they need it the most i've been talking this whole time i'm gonna kick it to you <laughs> what did you like so much about salt lakes win on friday night uh, well, before we get to Salt Lake's win, I can't recall if you mentioned them. I may have missed it, but did you talk about Detroit's heartbreaker? Oh, <laughs> shoot. I knew I missed one. It might have been dang the it. one game you missed. Dang it. Dang it. Dang it. Dang it. Uh, yeah. yeah. Indy clawing out a 20-19 win over Detroit. Mechanics almost snapping their historic losing streak on the road against the Alley Cats. Alley Cats instead improving to 5-2. and two. They've now won five in a row. 
trailing only New York and Salt Lake for the longest active winning streaks in the league. Alley Cats can't really say they looked impressive after that performance, <laughs> but they continue to get the job they done. Played. I will say the mechanics, the mechanics looked impressive. For they played one well. of the, they both they played their well. offense. Yeah. Their offense run by Nick Betch and Jake Kenev and some of those uh, uh, team veterans, culture veterans, they seem to be more precise than they've ever been. They committed a season low in turnovers. Really impressive performance from the mechanics. So, got that I feel out. Like that, yeah, I feel like that must have been close to a franchise low in turnovers, too. What was yeah. it, like 12 that they finished with? Which, of course, it's the indoor environment of Indy where, where anything goes and every offense looks really good. But... Yeah, still credit to Detroit. Unfortunately, lost a heartbreaker. Um, but yeah, anyway, back to the the headliner of Colorado Salt Lake. This was just this was a perfect game. I, I was watching it every single quarter. I was thinking to myself, this game is perfect. Like there was just nothing more that I could ask for. It had huge plays. It had super efficient offense. I mean, Salt Lake just showed why why we gave them the title of best offense in the first half of the season, right? Like. It was just so crisp, possession after possession. They they have just like the best, most cohesive flow in the entire league right now. As far as like what we've seen from the rest of the opponents, I'm not arguing that they're like concretely a better offense than a team like New York, but just like at no stall count gets above a few seconds, it seems. They just have so many possessions where they just connect on throw after throw. And even if the, the stall does get high, they have great reset options. They're getting production from literally all seven guys on their line. I feel like it expands to eight or nine. At times, they have some guys that go... Yeah, no, I, I, I was realizing I forgot a very important piece of their offensive setting rotation, and that is rookie and the youngest of the Jorgensen's, McKay Jorgensen. Yeah, McKay, yes. Stellar for them, and I feel like right. he represents so many of the qualities that you were talking about, this possession-focused, but it's it's sort of like lightning in a bottle energy in those tight spaces right and and mckay yep. i think exemplifies that better than anyone all he wants to do is run give and goes he's, in tight spaces and kinda, he, he he's like a speed server he's just going around setting up the table for everyone else he'll get his when he needs to on fill cuts and stuff in the red zone but there's no real sense that he needs the ball necessarily to succeed in this offense and i feel like that's kind of the quality that i'm noticing of everyone in the shred o-line it's like yes they're all fantastic at executing on the disc playmaking you name it feels like everyone has stepped up this year but the hustle away from the disc i think has been equally impressive the way that they clear the way that they set up there's never yep. any stagnancy they're constantly moving no yeah and it's because it's it's this you know this constant motion and selflessness almost right like We've talked about it a little bit before, but Jordan Kerr's like uh, touch numbers or the way in which they're using him is so drastically different from last year. He's equally mm -hmm. effective. I still consider him to be an MVP finalist through this point in the year, but like Definitely. they are so much more dynamic everywhere else. And you can just feel when when they don't have to rely on him, they almost they don't almost they look so much stronger. They just can. Yeah. Work through so much of these tough spots against a good Colorado defense. It is ridiculous to think that, like, he was their offense last year. Like, yeah, they had some of these role players in similar spots, but everything just rallied around Jordan Kerr. And it just has not been that case at all. Again, still a phenomenal player, and he still makes throws that are just like jaw dropping and, and can clearly 
jump with the best and has like breakaway speed. He's an incredible player. He's one of but, the best buzzer beater defenders this yeah, year. Yeah, number he of gets blocks. up and he he reads the disc super well. Um, but no, I was just gonna say we have like Jace Dunabaya launching precision hucks at this point. We have Jacob Miller who's just like elevated his game to such another level that he he's like uh, he has the aggressiveness that Kerr showed a lot last year where he suddenly has this nose for the end zone and I feel like you're just getting that that mindset and that production from everywhere in this offense and it it seems easy right like everything is just in rhythm in motion Selfridge is running give and goes and just like breaking free into the end zone every single game I, there's just nothing not to like about the Salt Lake offense. No discredit to Colorado either, but I just don't think there's another offense in the West that's playing like Salt Lake right now. No, I don't think that that's any stretch to say that. I mean, they're completely selfless. Again, they always make that extra pass, and it just always presents as these easy options. Everything's in flow. Their shot selection this year has just been dynamite. Yeah. You know, on both sides of the disc, we talked extensively last year about right. – how much of a huck and hope defensive counterattack this shred employed. And this year it's so radically different. They mm-hmm. are so much better at playing possession on the counter this year. And it feels like an extension of having to battle and practice against this offense. It feels like a little bit of that yep. has rubbed off onto them where it's just, it's so obvious how well it works, how it just kind of gets the defense in a frenzy. I mean, the summit had Three blocks on Friday night. Part of that was Cody Spicer having to shift to offense with the absence of Nethercut. And we can talk a little bit more have, about some have of those. Have to shift to offense. I don't know if he had to, but yeah, and we can talk about that in a minute. <laughs> you know, it's the it's the second week where they've played Spicer on offense, and obviously he was really, really good. It's to say nothing about the the talent and execution of what Cody Spicer brings to the offense but it didn't necessarily add a dimension to their attack in a way where they won, right? Or they they were able to sort of punch with this shred offense that is just firing on all cylinders and has everyone involved. And we kind of talked about this in the pre-record. It's like Colorado has as much talent as last year. The depth feels like it's not quite stepping up yet. And when you look at the game results, it's like the same three to five names at the top of the offensive production charts every single game for the Summit. It's, yep. it's Finer, it's Atkins, it's Stoughton, and it's it's not much else. Or And on Friday night, it was Cody Spicer with over 700 yards. You know, they, they're yeah. really yeah. leaning on their stars, and it feels sort of how Salt Lake played last year, where they had their identifiable playmakers and Kerr and Joe Merrill they usually got all the touches and you could kind of contain the rest. Mm-hmm. It's totally flipped this year. It feels like it feels like now all of a sudden Salt Lake knows they can kind of let those stars on the Colorado offense play to their content. As long as they kind of remove the rest of their attack from getting into rhythm. And then all of a sudden you see what happened at the end of that game where the shred just simply had more flow on their offensive possessions and on the final possession for the summit, it stagnated five yards outside the end zone. And rookie Everett Saunders was able to make one of the best blitzing interceptions I've seen recently to close yeah. that game out and ignite the home crowd, right? Like there's there's an obvious effect to both the lack of nethercut and I think the over-reliance on the exact players that sort of trail behind him in their sort of uh, depth chart on offensive attackers where it's like 
Right. They, they right. just they grind themselves out at times. They look tired at the end of both of these games this weekend. I was gonna say I would say Alex Atkins specifically. He had a phenomenal weekend. Like I I am blown away by his offensive ability and his just like he was do out. everything mindset. He was laying out. He has a torn labrum. I know, I know, and that was, yeah. He had that layout. It was in, I think it was in the fourth quarter of that Oakland game, and then he like tossed the assist right after, and you could just tell how exhausted he was from that whole weekend of games. I mean, he is he is like initiating pretty much every single summit possession, going every other for like half the field, taking over in the red zone, even breaking away deep if he's not the one throwing it deep. Like he he was just the the engine for this Colorado team, and it's weird because. Yeah, like they've still got Fruit and Matt Jackson and Quinn Finer, and you feel like they could take a bit more distributive of an approach, but it just felt like at times they got too Atkins centric. And I don't know if that was just the fact that Nethercut was gone and they maybe it was comfortable for them to have like a go to engine on offense, but I I was surprised by the lack of like yeah, I guess spread attack that we saw from Colorado. Like you said, it, it was very concentrated on those stars. And Cody Spicer, another great example, he was like going every other with Atkins most of the time. And it was just like those two guys that were running everything. And you just can't over rely on two or three guys to do everything for an offense. Uh, and then I, one quick note on the Salt Lake defense. I want to get back to it. Chad Jorgensen is a name that I feel like we haven't been talking about at all this year. And I feel like he's gone through a very similar, like, cur to, you know, I, it's not even a drop down of level. It's just like a different role he's playing where he doesn't have to do everything. Like, he's not getting these very loud blocks. He's not like launching the disc like he was last year. But I feel like that's another example of a guy that has just slotted in perfectly to this new D line identity. And he, like, hasn't gotten any worse. He's just like picking his spots a lot better. Um, there's just like a, a sense of momentum for defense and offense with Salt Lake. And it's all come from this like wide, widely distributed approach on both sides. Yeah. And so now Salt Lake sits eight and no three games up on any other contender in the West. It really looks like it's their division to lose going forward. They set up for a just humongous matchup in week 12 with the also undefeated and reigning champion New York Empire in what could be a preview of the 2023 championship game. I can't wait for that one, but just kind of wrapping up about Salt Lake. Again, it, it, it's it's the offense, it's it's the discipline of the defense, but it's also the thing that you and I and Evan Leppler picked unanimously last week. It's the coach of the year and that staff underneath Bryce Merrill, right? Like. Mm-hmm. You can point to all these different ways in which everyone just seems to have elevated all over the shred roster, and yet that points back to the coach and the staff and what they've really been developing there in Salt Lake and the systems that they've been teaching and sort of the the just overall culture that they've been building. Again, this team sustained a pretty serious number of absences on both sides of the disc during this offseason. Yeah. Sure, they brought in questions. Elijah Jaime. Sure, they brought in Grant Lindsley. But like Will Selfridge was a teenager coming back from a major knee injury, had no idea how he might look just stepping back onto mm-hmm. the field again, only played three pro games last year. He comes back. He's visibly better. Just like one of the best players yeah. in the West division this year, just 
adds a level to their team, gives them that that trash talker to kind of respond to Colorado. <laughs> that whole sequence at the end when, yeah, the, the bus driver back and forth between Atkins and Selfridge. Jordan Kerr did like a baby, like no trying <laughs> bus driver. That one was lame. Selfridge went in. I liked his Eugene LaRue after the driving bus. Two celebrations is better than one. So, I mean, Selfridge has been pretty puckish so far this season. Like, he's got a little bit of that, like, forest elf sort of trickster vibe where, like, he'll leave up like a swan hand after throwing assists and doing the bus driver and. He's yeah. done like falling away shot celebrations after goals. He did a snowflake goal last week in Colorado. Like he gives them an energy that I think they had last year, but it was more spread out. And for whatever reason, his ability to sort of like be a singular talisman for that kind of trickery, I, I don't know, like swag, whatever you want to call yeah, it, is, I guess is maybe what the kids are saying these days, but like he's got it. <laughs> And you can just see everyone swell when he starts doing the bus driver or making oh, yeah. his ridiculous plays or or whatever it is. Like he's been such an ignition boost to the team. Him and Jorgensen. Like I just I can't get over how good those two young players have been for them this season. How much of a difference they've made in these matchups against Colorado the past two weeks. They're just they're problems, man. And you can see like the Summit lack a little bit of defensive depth right now. They're struggling with injuries. They're smaller than they've been. Like you and I talked a bunch about expecting mm-hmm. Colorado to kind of have this imposing size this season with Spicer and the addition of Kai Marshall and Said Semrin coming in. Like they're supposed to kind of be beefed up. And for whatever reason, they haven't quite gotten to full strength on that side of the disc. And it just feels like teams are really confident attacking the summit deep with Hux and everything else. And this will kind of lead into talking about the game on Saturday night in Oakland, but Right now, the Summit are surrendering the fourth most hucks per game, over eight mm-hmm. to opponents. And while they're sixth in defending the huck, uh, opponents are completing just over 58% on the deep ball against the Summit. Opponents are just feeling confident in attacking Colorado over the top. And you can just see it again and again and again down the stretch and that incredible finish from the Spiders where they're just boosting it mm-hmm. to these almost children these these teens and these high schoolers that they have they are, that are, they are children like they're, they're kids yeah, i mean they got a bunch of kids running around we'll we'll talk about the dexter Clyburn, raekwon adkins dylan nice sort of just spark plug that <laughs> this oakland team has unearthed all of a sudden but going back to colorado it's just their 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 sheen of last year is worn off that prestige that they had of completing an 11-1 regular season in their first season, going to championship weekend in their first season, that whole kind of vibe isn't there right now. I, I, obviously, they've lost three in a row, but you can just see it in the way yeah. teams are approaching Colorado. They don't have any fear going at them. And last year, there was. There was a little bit of respect for this Colorado team in the way that they ran vertically on you on offense and played great matchup defense one-on-one, like, that defense isn't quite as tenacious. That offense is a little bit more possession focused. They lack a little bit mm-hmm. of the long ball, especially when Nethercut isn't in there. It's kind of finer right. and Atkins and not a whole bunch of other people really pulling the trigger. There's there's the occasional Jay Fruit Huck, there's the occasional Matt Jackson Huck, but it feels a lot more limited than last year. And it's just it's resulting in what happened with Oakland, where they just 
They were down four in the second half. They were down 17 to 13 at one point. Mm -hmm. And then they just, they find the fire and they rally at home and they pull out what, uh, 11 to six run to close out, including maybe the most impressive spree of highlights to upset a team I've ever seen. Like, yeah, I, I mean, Oakland and Salt Lake, I think you, you bring up a good point about like, yeah, Colorado's prestige sort of wearing off this year. Oakland, Oakland and Salt Lake have a few things in common. One, both those teams have gotten so much better, in my opinion, than they were last year, right? Like Oakland, obviously a lot of new additions, Salt Lake, some new additions, but just also like we talked about kind of the, the rising of the tide with all of those guys that showed so much potential last year. Also, just like the energy and the confidence that these teams play with, even if they're down, like Oakland has been down many times this year and they are just constantly in it, constantly like storming the field after any huge play. And like those guys at the end of the game, like I just it, it didn't feel like Colorado would for sure lose that game, but you could just tell mindset wise and like environment wise like everything was going oakland's way and they close it out with yet another statement sky from keenan lawrence dexter clyburn just unleashes this throw with a few seconds left i want to see an angle that like i don't know if i've seen an angle that shows like the whole progression because he was kind of like off screen on the the top 50 angle but clyburn like waited a while before he threw that it sounded like lawrence had kind of cut deep was kind of lingering in the deep space and then the throwing up. I like, I don't know how Colorado didn't really have a second help defender coming back in time, but just the trust that Clyburn showed in that moment and the ability to put the disc in the spot where Keenan Lawrence was able to go up and get it. I, I don't know. I just think there's so much like mojo and energy with this Oakland team. And I I'm happy for them. This was a, this was like a, a wounded Colorado team they got and they just kind of like put them in their place. This was probably the biggest win that Oakland's had, I would say, since 2015. But correct me if I'm wrong. No, I mean, they did get to the playoffs in 2017. But yeah, I mean, they haven't beaten a team of this caliber since they won the championship in 2015. Like, it's been a struggle for the Spiders for several seasons. And I think to your point about the mojo and the energy, that's been in particular what I felt has been lacking from them. They've had talent, they've had good systems, and they've they've had kind of a, a, a girdedness to their approach to games that at times can resemble like a San Diego in terms of they're going to kind of battle in whatever matchup yeah. that they're given. But this year, it's just a whole different level. I mean, do you realize we haven't even talked about the fact that they were arguably missing their two best players and Mac Hecht and Chris Long yeah. in this match? Which, okay, I, I mean... That's I, how okay. well... Apparently, that's I was... How well the, I we haven't even mentioned off. Parker Frankenberg, who is probably still... I was still way thinking that those two absences would have any sort of impact on this game because Oakland has just shown incredible depth on offense. Like, it, they don't even need their two best throwers and, like, their two mainstays and as far as, like, advancing the offense goes. But... Clyburn, Frankenberg, and Magsig were just running dominator sets at the end of the game. Like, hold on, they hold on. Have, they have so many guys that can do that and just drive the offense forward. It's nuts. Didn't you? I think you said in our preview episode that if Hecton Lung didn't play, you would favor Colorado by around four goals. Yeah, I, I said like four, four yeah. or five. Yeah, and to be fair, just, they were up. They were up seventeen, thirteen. They were. They were. Margin. 
couldn't hang out. It, it's just, it's nuts how just able they are to seize these moments, given how young they are and given how few reps they've had. I mean, this offense is still one of the newest in the league this year. Like, Many of these pieces did not play together last year. Chris Lung right. even spelled a whole bunch on D-line last year. He wasn't this, like, mainstay offensive cog. He was fantastic. He was an all-star. But they they kind of plugged and played him around. Mac Hecht, who – did you choose him for biggest addition, or did you go with Pavel? I can't remember. I was, I was between the two of them. I, I ended up picking Pavel, but I picked Hecht for best thrower. One okay. of them had to I, go I in chose- one of the categories. I, I, I reversed it. I chose Pavel for best thrower, <laughs> and I picked Hex for go. biggest addition. So, yeah. you know, they're, they're two kind of pillars. As And we'll get to how, even without their pillars, this is an incredibly exciting team. But, like, the two players who have been fundamental to what their system has been running, just not there. And they still ran much of the same offense. And yep. that's obviously a credit to... You know, Lawrence Clyburn, uh, uh, Raekwon Atkins. Um, but I also want to mention Evan Magsig, who is somebody that we haven't talked a whole a bunch game. about. Impact in this year. A player who I think has shown an immense possession skill-based handler game over the mm-hmm. past couple of seasons. Last year, he was really, really good as kind of that pivot handler in the center of the field. Not necessarily taking a whole bunch of huck looks, but really deep bag, really adept at breaking the mark, really good at using the width of the field. This year, it just feels like he is an all-around playmaker. He has made big blocks in each of the last two to three games yeah. or something. Maybe you can get one this last week. But he's suddenly like playing off the disc and making these big plays in ways he hasn't before. He's got, again, to much of the rest of the Spiders roster, a whole heap of confidence. That trust ball he put up to Clyburn in the clutch – I mean, he just he just winged it from the side. He just says yeah. decks down there somewhere and just put it to him. I, I just I really like how he, as the team leader, is commanding their play, and especially with the absences that they suffered. It just seems like yeah. everyone is coded the same way in the spider system. Everyone is on board with what they're trying to do, even mm-hmm. if it is a lot of huck balls up into space and hoping that Keenan or Dexter <laughs> somebody can come down with them. It works yeah. for them. I mean, they were 12 of 14 on hucks in this game. There it was working, yeah, it was working all the game. They were hitting. So yeah, why stop? I mean, there there is like a clear youth about this team too, both in terms of their energy, but also I think in terms of the the bit of variance <laughs> we've seen with them. Like, this you know, they, they did they went down 17-13 <laughs> on like I don't know, three or four straight Colorado breaks. Like there are moments where it's like, okay, they're making these bad, like short field turnovers and you don't really know what the offense is doing, but I don't know. There's just something about this Oakland team that makes them fun to root for. They have a lot of similarities with Salt Lake right now. I mean, they're the like buy-in to this offensive system that both teams are running. It's, it's hard to find like that, that like tight knit of a group, I feel like across the league. So Props to Oakland. I mean, this was a huge win. Here's maybe the toughest question I'm going to ask on this entire episode. Who would you rather have as two young players to build around in your offensive system? Salt Lake's McKay Jorgensen and Will Selfridge or Oakland's Dexter Clyburn and Walker Frankenberg? I I do uh, not know. I don't know. <laughs> I think three of them are my finalists right now for rookie of the year in McKay, Dexter, yeah. and Walker uh, through the first eight weeks. And Will Selfridge, 
right now is I think the best player of the quartet. Probably. But I don't know Probably, how to parse it. I'm just saying that both I don't of these know. Maybe it's maybe it's recently biased. Clyburn looked unreal. And like he he clearly has, I would say, just as high a ceiling as Will Selfridge does. <laughs> Did you so, see the screenshot that I posted on Twitter of the block attempt <laughs> that you tried on Jay Fruit? Yeah. Where he's like touching the top of the backboard height in the air. And it's so high up, Fruit looks like he's like afraid of it a little bit. I mean, that's the kind of play that Jay Fruit made for years. And to just see Clyburn yeah. like elevate into space and again, like attack the dips confidently against a player like Fruit, like not not get engaged in the body, not like let Fruit kind of dictate that matchup. Instead, Clyburn goes right. and makes a play he knows he can make. I mean, it's just the whole team is doing it. But yeah, Clyburn, they're four and one I mean, with Clyburn in the lineup this year. He yeah. is just a field stretcher for them on offense. I I didn't quite know that he had this kind of throwing performance in him where he's completing 45 throws and just ripping it yeah. deep whatever he wants. That, Neither that did came I. a little out. But here we are. I mean, he's been showing the open field speed for weeks and weeks and weeks. His ability to pressure the defense by just going and drawing a defender or two, it reminds mm-hmm. me a little bit of like the receivers on the Miami Dolphins in the NFL, Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddle. The way they can just come out and immediately apply pressure to your vertical defensive coverage, it just mm-hmm. kind of warps everything else. And then you can see there's sort of this like midfield gap that opens up and, oh, all of a sudden, Frankenberg and everyone comes rushing into that space and playing right. this give-and-go ball and just ratcheting the offense upfield and suddenly they're in attacking position and suddenly they're in the red zone. And that's exactly where they like to be. You know, Hecht and Long have been fantastic in those opportunities in the past. Magsig and Frankenberg took over the helm this past weekend and did really adeptly. It's just like, they're very, to your point earlier, they're very similar to Salt Lake and it feels like they have a lot of different pieces that they can find solutions to defensive coverage with. They don't, they don't have to right. rely on any one person. They don't have to rely on a particular style. Obviously, they love to boost it, but yeah, it, it, clearly they still show, I think, enough of the, I don't want to call it patience because I don't know if could necessarily <laughs> have patience, but they can be though. They can be patient. Possession oriented approach, like, like yeah. high volume, high volume, like, right. You know, twenty plus completions in a drive or something like they're very capable of. It doing was that. it was those moments in the fourth quarter where it was literally Frankenberg, uh, Clyburn, and Magsig that were just it was just the three man backfield. Even Spicer was one of the defenders that was on one of those guys, and like there's just only so much you can do when they're just hitting every single short throw and they're just cutting off of each other super well. I don't know. Back to your question. I've been thinking about your question this whole time. I. I I want to I kind of want to say Clyburn and Frankenberg because I do think Frankenberg is my current rookie of the year and from what we saw from Clyburn this past weekend like there is there is nothing offensively that I doubt he can do um and I just yeah. don't know if I I see the same type of versatility with the two shred guys I don't know like the shred guys are good at defense though too I mean I know that's kind of looking a little bit like I like Frankenberg immensely. I'm waiting to see a little bit more from him in coverage on defense. Clyburn, meanwhile, is like adding right. a cornerback. If you do turn it, he has three blocks in five games, and he's just too much of an he's athlete. Just long and, and rangy and fast. 
I feel like Oakland is becoming a team that's a little bit hard to get a good long drive against in a counterattack situation for a break score. I feel like you have to kind of hit them in yeah. quick transition. And that's what Colorado did in the second half. They got some like short field stuff. They kind of right, picked right. up and quickly converted on mistakes that Oakland was making. It wasn't like they had to go run against Oakland yeah. in the open field. Because there is another point where I think it was, I can't remember which Oakland defender, but there was two consecutive bids back to back on an att- Colorado break attempt. And one was Dexter Clyburn pressuring the thrower. And then the spiders got the block on the next throw. And it's just like, they just oh, got it. May have been, uh, what's the was guy with the last name? Robin Vickers. Vickers Batsdorf. Yes. RVB. I think it was him. So... And that was on Atkins. I'm pretty sure he got yeah. that block. That was a great it was, play. It was late in the game. Atkins yeah. was just so that tired after cool. what, like 150 touches in two games or something. <laughs> like his workload was just human. So, you know, like, but, but to your point, and I'm glad you brought up RVB. He, He's kind of taken over the mantle of defensive leader and tone setter. He had a mm-hmm. he picked off like a first pass earlier in the game that Oakland couldn't quite convert into a break, but he has been the talisman for that defense. You know, we just talked about all the offensive players and the spark that they right. provide. I feel like RVB has really become that for their defense, and they're just getting a lot of good contributions from various sources there. There's still I think a little exploitable in some matchups. I think you saw that with Colorado. They still played confidently. But as the season progresses, I'm more and more impressed by the Spiders' ability to throw a few different coverages and at least play and get breaks to a level where they're supporting that offensive mojo. Right. They're playing smart, like on that D-line offense. Like yeah. they're not eight, they're eight not for just 12 on, eight for twelve on break opportunities against the summit. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, that yeah. was like it was breaks. That was kind of the reason why the shred beat the summit in that first meeting. So, yeah, and a couple I mean, of those. Can, if you can break, if you can break the Colorado offense consistently eight times in a game, I mean, that's that's super impressive. Yeah, yeah. Well, moving on from the West Division, we want to get to one more game to kind of talk about game analysis, and that was the game of the week. Minnesota's super impressive twenty-four to nineteen win in Madison at Bree Stevens Field. Minnesota, again, improving 6-1, and one, holding on to first place now by a couple of games in the Central Division, trying to set up hosting championship weekend at the end of this season. Minnesota's defense is by far the best in the division right now, and I really yep. think deserves its true place within like the top three to four in the league. Not only because of the coverages that they run and the results that they get, but I think just the overall intensity and the way that they seem to have taken advantage of these new pulling rules more than any other team. The takeaway mm-hmm. from Saturday night for me was the field position game and the way in which Madison's offense had to dig out from essentially the shadow of their own goal on almost every single possession. Sam yep. Berglund and Cameron Lacey were pinning the Radicals offense with their pulls on that back line. And even when they weren't getting breaks, you could just feel the cumulative effect and the sort of demotivation that comes with having to orchestrate these just such long drives. And it's not really in the Radicals' ability to work patiently on offense. They no. want to get out into fast break and essentially start hucking within five or six throws. And Minnesota mm-hmm. presents the problem of, hey, you might be able to go deep sometimes, but we're going to have help defense back there and you're going to have to work 90 yards in order to do it. 
we talked in in our pre-show about another NFL comparison. Second one of the episode, you have the Miami Dolphins earlier, but we'll go with uh, like the coffin corner punt that pins a team inside the 10 or inside the five. Very similar to these polls. Like, I, you know, they're essentially punters that are trying to pin a team as deep as possible. And you do gain a new appreciation for them when you realize that so many of these polls this season do go out the back of the end zone. Like, it is hard to get it just inside that back line or just blady enough to roll past the receiver on the other end. And Minnesota just does it better than anyone else right now. I think the pressure that builds kind of like in those opening throws, like you were saying, even if they're not getting the Callahan or getting an early field turnover, it's just more throws and more high pressure throws. Like there's only so much an offense can do. They can't go backwards when they're that deep. They kind of have to swing the disc or find something upfield. And Madison is just not equipped to handle that pressure consistently. And I think you saw the Minnesota defense just repeatedly kind of impose their will in that way against Madison. And not only is it sort of a, an energy advantage, a field position advantage to pin them deep with the poles, there's a schematic advantage to the way in which you limit the opposition's ability to play call and run their offense. Similar to what you yep. were just saying about being on the 5 or 10-yard line in the NFL, being backed up that close to the own goal line prevents the openness of your playbook. You can't just right. go and run a spread offense and try to take some aggressive looks because you're too close to giving up that break. Similar to how in the NFL, you're not just going to run trips right and start playing spread pass attack. You're going to run some base goal line sets and do you just some, get it out know, of there running back dives to just get three yeah. or four yards and create some breathing room. And you could feel mm -hmm. the same thing happening with Madison where they were just continually limited in how they were able to start their drives. And we actually talked about that with Madison's head coach, Tim DeBile last week in some game prep for the game where he's talked about these new pulling rules have really forced them to kind of have to adapt their offensive starting strategies in the past. Mm -hmm. They basically had two play calls that they would run out onto a field with, and they would just work as bread and butter 90% of the time. Now, with the ability of pullers to sort of just blow up those plans with like a, a pull that spikes and rolls out in a way that was unplanned, right. you're suddenly setting up in a completely different part of the field than what your offense had just prepped for. You've got an audible on the fly, and you can see that happening with the Radicals kind of a lot this year where... They seem to want to run a certain kind of offense and then the, the pull will roll or it'll go somewhere where they're not expecting. And suddenly they're having to run this very different formation than what they had gone on the field intending to do. And it's just, it's creating more arrhythmia. It's part of the reason why they're one in five. And, and to Minnesota's credit, it really feels like they've seized on understanding what that does to opposing offenses. The way in which, again, they yep. can just kind of dictate for four quarters with their defense what you're going to do from the start. I think it's going to change the way we talk about offenses too. Like it's a, it's a new way to analyze offenses, like the ability they have to, to stay calm and stay patient and work the disc out of their own end zone with as many throws as it takes. And I, I'm sure we're going to start seeing, especially as we, we get into the playoffs, like certain teams are going to be a lot better at that than other teams. And then also like players have talked about this too in, in past player chatters, but like kind of the, the specialists you need to just like receive these pulls now and quickly just get it out of there as fast as possible. Like either catch it or stop the roll, like anything that rolls past you, like it just, 
I, I'd be curious to see like the kind of the percent or the expected drop off in offensive efficiency when you have to start literally on the back line versus anywhere else on the field. Yeah, I imagine like, it's pretty significant. Yeah, they have those in the NFL too, like success of a starting drive position, then it, it just right, deteriorates right. and you go further. And I, I, yeah, I would love to see like, I feel like from the brick mark back, it just like takes a nosedive. You, you can, yeah. it, it, anecdotally, I mean, just look at how Madison right, was. you can tell. Well, because it also the defense is like set up by the time you finally like get the disc onto that back line. The defense is there. Like you don't have any free throws, which is, right. yeah, it's just a tough spot for anyone. I'd imagine New York is probably the best suited team to, to work out of those conditions. Just anecdotally throwing it out there. I like DC. DC had a couple of really long drives this past weekend where it's, you know, Andrew Roy getting open for a reset cut and then just like off to the races for the breeze offense. Salt Lake too, their ability to work up out of the end zone. Yeah. Having Sean Canole back there too, who can just rip a full field huck backhand when they need it. Helpful. I feel like he's one of the few in the league who could just be entrusted to say, hey, you're five yards deep in our own end zone. <laughs> Play field position downfield with either Jay Stunabile or Jordan Kerr. Um, yeah. It's never I, I digress. This Minnesota win sets up, I think, one of the more intriguing matchups that I had completely reversed in my head when the schedule dropped. And that's the yep. windshield going this next weekend to Colorado to face a Summit team that has now lost three in a row. Going into this season, I had that pegged as like a five-plus goal win for Colorado. Given how Colorado played at home last year, given how they punished teams deep, I was worried about Minnesota's athleticism in this matchup against the Summit to start the season. I'm not necessarily worried about that anymore. And with the way that this defense is playing and the way that Colorado is struggling to figure out kind of which version of itself it wants to be, right. I, I like the wind chill going on the road. I don't know if I would favor them. I just think that they have a lot going for them in this matchup with the Summit. I think the Summit are going to be very unused to the kind of defensive pressure that the Central Division brings. I think the schemes, and again, these these pulls that the windshield employ, I think are really going to be something that Colorado is going to have to practice against and prepare for in a real way. Otherwise, windshield have proven. They can just sort of string together breaks. That defense is tuned up. Dylan DeClerc is a wide receiver one on the counterattack. He had six goals. He scored in so much. Even. And, and yeah. he's just... He's, he, it, it's the whole lineup, he's representative of it, but they just run off of turns. They're very yep. confident in running that counterattack. You talk to Brandon Madison, that defensive leadership, and that is exactly their identity. They are mm -hmm. really well conditioned this year. They look faster on the counter. They play good matchup defense, and you can see they just ratchet up a level once they get that disc and they have a break opportunity. And DeClerc has been such, such a good player, a star for them these past three seasons in leading that counter of just being available. You can see the way in which it's not fun for opposing offenses to suddenly identify where DeClerc is and figure out how to get a body on him because he's just going to be running away from people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, uh, right. And like you said, that whole line is just running wild right now. Berg, the Berg, uh, what do we call it? The icebergs. The icebergs. Uh, Berg, Bergmeier and Berglund, those guys are playing out of their minds. Like whether they're... Oh. Whether Thank they're you. the ones launching the disc or, yeah, Bergmeier had that insane second effort catch uh, on that really cool Dan Garlock almost block. Um, yeah, that was like an incredible adjustment. I, I just think those guys have kind of been the a lot of the engine of this defense, but 
yeah, it really is like a team-wide mindset that you see them just blitzing teams after turnovers. And that's kind of exactly how they need to be playing right now in the Central Division with all this like somewhat shakiness on the offensive side. I guess we haven't seen a second game against Indianapolis yet uh, for Minnesota, but yeah, I'm excited for that one too. Also, by the way, for the Colorado game, how much how much are you thinking about last year's uh, semifinal game when Chicago just destroyed Colorado and it wasn't even close? Like, is it just is it too different? Like, just two completely different play styles: Central Division versus West Division, where the West Division teams are just not well equipped to handle the Central Division patience or, or grindiness or grittiness, whatever you want to call it. Or, I don't know, are you taking more of like a, a step back and just looking at these individual team strengths without thinking too much about like, yeah, divisional play styles, I guess. Because I, I can't help but think about that Chicago game. And I did not I did not see that coming at all. Chicago winning by whatever it was, eight goals or, or something like that. So not to say that I would expect Minnesota to do the same, but Minnesota has looked like the best team in the Central this this year, and and Colorado looks a lot more human the past two weeks than I think we initially thought. No, I I do think the divisional meta sort of play style thing is a huge component to this specific kind of interdivisional play. Um, I do think that there are no more too dissimilar. I said that the worst way possible. There are <laughs> the West and the Central Division couldn't be more dissimilar, right? Like yeah. the the sort of uh, curriculum of the Central Division for years has been enforced sort of from the antecedents of the Madison Radicals defense, having to work against right. the zone, having to be good at situational ultimate, having to understand midfield poaches, how help defense works deep, how a true double team works, the different kinds of trappings you can present. There's just mm-hmm. so much more of, I think, a rich tactical sort of back and forth in the central division than there has been in the West. The West is much more open, much more focused on playmaking. I mean, look at the end of that Colorado and Oakland game. It's just kind of (laughs) going to your playmakers deep in one-on-one coverage. I struggle to think of any central division game that ends like that. Central division games end with like (laughs) craziness, a deflection, a, a double team hand block into like a quick break score it's kind right. of all these, like, again, like situational ultimate scenarios. And I just feel mm-hmm. like Colorado, for all their strengths, are still just getting reps against certain kinds of looks and defensive coverages. And Minnesota right now might be the best in the league at employing them. And so I just think there's a bit of, you know, a learning curve for the Summit to catch up to. This is a Minnesota team that has a much more established game plan, tradition, culture, personnel than the summit do it right it kind of almost negates the talent advantage that you might have favoring colorado looking at these matchups on paper like sure you could probably say that like if you're doing a fantasy draft you would choose a handful of colorado players over like the the sort of top end of the minnesota roster all due respect to bivon and josh clain and all those guys it's (laughs) it's kind of where kind of where things are right now like summit has a ton of talent but right now their depth needs to step up. The rest of the West's depth is improving and Colorado seems to be depreciating. And Minnesota right now looks like the deepest team in the central. And so can they take advantage of the back end of that summit roster? Can they use some of the situational knowledge 
to sort of warp the contours of this game at elevation where the Summit are going to want to strike deep. They're going to want to huck. I assume Nethercut is going to be in the lineup. I haven't quite been able to check if so. the active rosters are out yet, but I assume that the Colorado will still try to attack deep, and I think Minnesota is going to have a really good game plan for that. They they have great help defense. Uh, Tanner Barkus has been great on that D-line along with everyone else. We were talking about this also. Like Minnesota is sneaky big. They can run a yeah. starting seven on defense of like six foot one plus defenders who are very flexible shifting. They have a lot of offside help. They kind of are able to instruct you. Like they're they're physical, but they're not overly aggressive. But they're able to sort of dictate where their their coverage is making an offense play. And you can see that against the Radicals and the other opponents that Winchell have faced. Like it's an impressive unit. And again, they have a whole bunch of confidence coming off of this win and breeze and Summit are, are on the opposite end of the spectrum right now. They're, they're looking for some stop gaps. They're looking to stop the skid. And we haven't seen what Colorado does when they have a losing streak yet. Like this is their first right. losing streak. Yeah. It's nuts to think that Colorado could be seven and five this regular season. Cause a yeah. game against Minnesota and then another game against New York. Five losses for this Colorado team. I don't think anyone would have seen that coming this year. And that makes it just so much more interesting for that that second and third spot in the West right now because LA and Oakland right now have the same record as Colorado. Man, if one of those teams actually edges out Colorado for the two seed in the West, I mean, I like I, I don't have full faith in Colorado to win that playoff game. That's wild, man. <laughs> even after they do it, if they do win. Not only are we at the point where we're saying that Colorado might not even host a playoff game, we're also saying that maybe even if they do host it, they're not necessarily going to be clear favorites (laughs) given the way that Los Angeles and Oakland are starting to look at this mid-season point and the depth that they have. We haven't even gotten a chance to talk about LA in this episode. We'll have more of an opportunity coming up in our preview later this week. Mm -hmm. But there's just, again, it's just, it feels like the tilt is just starting to go downhill towards the playoffs and championship weekend at this point. It really feels like this is sort of the synthesis of the competition that's been going on so far, where it's just every week matchups are kind of coming to a head, greater and greater sort of uh, potential, right? Definitely. No, I'm, I'm so excited. Is Minnesota, Colorado, that's, that's this week, right? It's the game of the week this week. It's the game of the week. Yeah. Evan Leffler and the rest of the crew will be out in the Rockies to cover that one. I, I can't wait for that matchup. Again, I I had that pegged in the preseason as an easy Colorado win. I I'm thought it with you. I agree. Very difficult travel for Minnesota, but given the way that mm-hmm. the Windchill are playing, they're just going to come in there tough. You know it. We'll, again, be previewing that on Thursday's episode. We've got to wrap it up here for today on Swing Pass. We thank you so much for joining on our Week 8 recap episode. Again, we'll be back with you in not too long. We hope to see you then. Thanks. Bye now.